Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with David Bradford. He is the author of the book, Connect, Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends, and Colleagues. David was the principal developer of the course Interpersonal Dynamics at the Stanford Business School, which is the most popular course at Stanford Business School. David has spent decades refining these strategies and teaching students how to connect on a deeper level, push past difficult issues, and build truly exceptional relationships with other people. In this episode, we're really going to be looking at the components of an exceptional relationship. What takes a relationship to the next level? We're going to work through some very specific examples, like how to talk to your teenager about doing their laundry, about getting their grades up, about issues that they're having with their friends. We're going to talk about what to do if you have a lazy teenager who's playing video games on social media. And David is going to walk us through some specific scripts that we can use, as well as the principles behind the scripts so that we can learn how to apply these concepts to any situation we might find ourselves in with a teenager. By the time we get to the end, you're going to have a concrete toolbox of strategies that you can go put into practice with your teenager starting today. Really looking forward to talking about all of that and a whole lot more. David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Wow. Okay, so I have been reading through this book of yours called Connect, Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends, and Colleagues. And this is not something that you just kind of came up with yesterday. You've been, um, work, this is based on a course that you design and have been teaching for decades at Stanford Business School. And I'm curious, like, where did this come from? You know, how did this begin? What was the impetus for you to kind of get into this? I guess the course is, is referred to as touchy-feely. That's right. That's what the students call it. Not the official title. <laughs> okay. The school wouldn't like that, but that's what the students call it. Well, right. I uh, got I got into it uh, actually as a teenager. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this is a interesting methodology in which uh, students or participants, twelve of them, uh, are in a group and meet, and they uh, look at their interactions with each other. Yeah. And it's a whole notion that um, only you know the effect of my behavior. So I need to hear that in a way that I don't feel attacked. It doesn't make me defensive and so on. Yeah. So the, one of the people, one of the three people who developed this methodology in the uh, 1950s was my father. 
So I, so I grew up with this. Okay. Yep. And um, I think it helped the relationship with my parents. We probably could have done it better, but one can always do it better. Yeah. So I knew, I knew how to run these groups. And um, I was recruited by Stanford to develop this course. So they reached out to me and being in the Bay Area isn't a bad place to be. So I came out here and as I say, the rest is history. Well, it's very robust. I mean, you uh, have, there's just so many years worth of wisdom. I can tell that are crammed into this book and it's really fun to read. There's lots of great examples. You kind of have these different stories throughout the book that you keep coming back to and showing how the concepts can be applied in different situations. And it just makes it really, really easy to follow and easy to see how these things are applicable in your life. One of the first concepts in the book that really stood out to me is this idea of the 15% rule. And Mm -hmm. you have a a kind of a diagram in here with these three circles. You call the zone of comfort is kind of the center of the bullseye. And then right outside of that, there's the zone of learning. And then outside of that is the zone of danger. And um, what what are are we talking about here? What do those kind of represent? And what what is the 15% rule? Sure. Uh, It's a very uh, useful concept. The students love it. There are things that we will share with anybody. You know, I'll share that. I've been married actually 56 years. I have uh, two kids and three grandkids. I can talk about Stanford. There are safe things. That's that's comfortable for me. Sure. And then uh, outside of that is another zone that I, I may want to share, but I may have some concerns with. Okay, yeah. And then there's the outer zone, the zone of danger, where I know that if I share that, you may not like me. You may reject me. You may misunderstand me. I, I want to avoid that. Right. So the students say, um, well, how, how do we share things? And we say, take 15% risk out of your zone of comfort into yeah. the zone of learning. It's unlikely to be a disaster. You can probably recover. But if right. you do that, you're being better known. And you're building conditions where the other person will share a little bit more. So if we apply this to uh, parent-teenage relations, um, the teenager may um, be thinking about a different sort of college or a different sort of experience as parents want, or may be bothered about some pressure he or she is feeling by the parents. And it's sort of say, well, should I raise it? Should I not raise it? Well, what's 15%? And the nice thing is that if you raise that, as I said, unlikely to be a disaster, your parents may say, well, this is why it's important to me. So they share more. And now the zone of comfort increases. It grows. And we now have more in common. And that's what helps to build the relationship. Yeah. Because if you share some, if you go out of that 15% zone and then the other person accepts that and you feel safe there, then it's like you're, it kind of starts to expand and now you can go a little farther next time. Correct. You take another 15%. Right. So how do you know what's 15% or what's too much to share with your teenager or how you kind of toe that line? 
Well, again, it's a risk. You don't know, but you sort of say to yourself, look, I don't want to really do a full thing, but this is, um, this I think I could share. So you test it out. And that's why we like the notion of a 15%. Now, now one of the clues to use is to listen to your feelings. Yeah. So I, w- I would listen to what's important to me. Gee, I'm thinking of sharing that and my feelings say, oh no, that's, that's too far. I would listen to those feelings. But the feelings might say, oh, let's try it. It's a little scary, but let's try it. So our feelings give us a good clue as to what it might be useful to share. And you talk about also how just sharing your feelings can be a way of kind of venturing out of the zone of comfort a little bit and talking That's about right. how, how something is making you feel. You, this is, you make an important distinction in here because we've had people talk about uh, using I feel statements before, but you point out that sometimes we do this wrong. Sometimes we say I feel, but really we're not talking about a feeling. Um, we say, <laughs> you know, I feel like you want to dominate this conversation. Uh, uh, something where that's not actually, that's not really sharing your feelings. That's just um, making an accusation towards the person. But sometimes it's hard to tell, or sometimes you think you're, you're you're using the word I feel and you think you're sharing a feeling, but you're actually not. How do you like navigate that as a parent? How do you, how do you make sure that what you're sharing is really a feeling and it's not um, making kind of a judgment about your teenager? Yeah, it's, um, the English language, we use, I feel, in two different ways. They're both legitimate. We just need to know the distinction. And one of the clues is that uh, there's two clues. One is, yeah. if you say, I feel that, like, or as, right. it's unlikely to be an emotion. Okay. I feel that you want to dominate. Has some emotions behind it, but there's not an yeah. emotion in that statement. Right. The other cue is... Could you substitute think for the word feel? Ah. I wouldn't say, I think angry. We would say, I feel angry. But if I say, I feel that you want to dominate, I could say, I think you want to dominate. So those are two sort of cues. And um, the wonderful thing is that when you share your feelings, it tends, as you're saying, to be less accusatory. And it's also more disclosing because you're saying Mm. what's important to me. So a teenager could say, uh, I'm feeling bothered, Dad, because when I say something, um, you talk over me. That's behavioral. That's a feeling. And it's less accusatory than saying, I think you want to dominate. I feel you want to dominate. Right. So start with your feelings and stick to the behavior. Yeah, also, because a lot of times we get into those kind of conversations with teenagers, you know, I feel like you don't trust me. Um, I feel like you're not being honest with me. Um, And and we're trying to express our feelings, but really, actually, we're making assumptions about what's going on in their head. And and instead of actually disclosing something about ourselves, it's kind of dangerous ground to walk on. What's wrong with offering advice 
isn't it a good thing? Isn't that what parents are supposed to do? Give <laughs> give your teenagers some great advice when they're struggling with something or when they're having an issue or a problem. Isn't that kind of your job as a parent? You know, sit them down and give them some good fatherly or motherly wisdom on what they should do or how they should think about it in a different way? Well, there are ways to do that and ways not to do it. The trouble is that uh, advice tends to be what the parent would do right, and fits their needs and may not speak to what the uh, teenager wants. Yeah. So it can be more useful to really understand the teenager. And what we stress is exploratory, open-ended questions where you're really curious. Where I could say, I think of when my son was a teenager, a teenager, I could say, well, Jeff, you're sounding bothered about that. Can you tell me more what's going on for you? What are you concerned about? Uh, what sort of options have you thought about? What are the pros and cons of those options? Note those are all open-ended questions. A closed-ended question can be answered in yes or no. Have you thought of doing that? Have X? you tried? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes or no. And that's more directive. You're kind of really now, just telling them what to do. Yeah. And I think that people want to be understood. Yeah. And I think the teenager wants to know that my parent wants to understand me. And it also might be that what the teenager wants is different than what the parent wants. Sure. Yeah. And that happens all the time. Can we understand what the concerns are of each and speak to that? Hmm. So now we use talk about advice. It could be that the parent would say, well, here are two or three options. I wonder if you thought about, which is very different than saying you ought to do X. Right. Advice yeah. can so quickly get into being a directive. And if there's anything teenagers don't want is to be directed because they're striving for their independence and autonomy. Yeah, I love that. And there's a research showing teenagers, a lot of times when they're making decisions, um, they tend to get focused on, you know, yes or no kind of thinking. Should I do this or should I not do this? Is this a good idea or is this not a good idea? And instead of kind of jumping in and saying, oh, you shouldn't do this or, oh, yes, you should, just kind of trying to help them widen that scope, like you're saying, and saying, hey, you know, I don't know what's best for you. You have to kind of make this decision yourself, but maybe uh, if it's okay with you, maybe I could help you just think of a few more possible options you could consider or something like that. Um, That's right. Really helpful, and, yeah. And, and I think also that the parent is going to have some feelings. And uh, yeah. bud. gee, I'm concerned if you do that because I worry about you. I think yeah. that feels a little dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and I worry if you do that. And I would prefer you not do it. I mean, you can have preferences. The teenager is going to know that you have feelings and is going to, uh, why read between the lines when you can be explicit? You talk about, well, a lot of examples in this book come from the business world, which I know is where you are 
teaching in uh, business school. And you talk about uh, higher status people often being unaware that their role makes it hard for people to disclose to them. A lot of the book kind of focuses on disclosure and, you know, disclosing things to other people and making them feel comfortable disclosing things to you. And like, they're not going to be judged. And I feel like this plays out a lot in parent-teen relationships as well, because there's such a power dynamic there. And it does feel as a teenager, like, wow, I don't know if I feel safe disclosing a lot of stuff because I might get in trouble. I might be judged. My parents might then, you know, limit my freedoms and not let me do things. If I tell them some of these things that might worry them about what's going on with my friends or what's happening with me. And I wonder what, what we could do about that or how we could, you know, address that kind of status issue, make them feel more comfortable disclosing more things to us. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard one. And remember that parents withhold information as well to protect the kid. And sometimes it's necessary to withhold that. It may be more than the teenager can handle. But uh, there's sort of a, a mutual protection going on that may be in part necessary, but might be more than is necessary. Yeah. Again, uh, you gave the example of the teenager not sure sharing what friends are doing, it may be actually reassuring to say, you know, my, uh, my friends are uh, smoking a lot of marijuana. Yeah. And, you know, I'm getting pressured to do the same. Yeah. And if the parent could not freak out. Oh, uh, my God. I never want yeah. you to see those kids again. You're forbidden from hanging out with them. Oh, this is terrible. Well. That's a wonderful opportunity for the teenager to say, you know, when you respond that way, that's so controlling, that feels controlling, Now, where I feel controlled, I don't want to share more. I'd rather have a relationship where I can um, be more disclosure. Could we replay that one, Dad, Hmm. and talk about ways that uh, I can share that and talk through what I'm going to do? So things can go south. But you can point out the costs of the parent acting that way and say, do you really want me to withhold all this information when I would rather share it so we can talk about it? Because each parent and teenager can work on defining what the relationship is going to be like. And I think that you don't want to share everything. I'll never forget the time my a uh, 15-year-old daughter said to my wife, I'm going to tell you everything I do. And my wife said to herself, I'm not sure I want to hear that. <laughs> and we didn't hear everything <laughs> just as well. Right. But we heard some things. Yeah. And uh, we were able to build a, uh, a good relationship. Because hmm. I think also sometimes as parents, we worry about disclosing too much to our teenagers about, you know, what we did when we were their age, or um, even uh, in our 20s and 30s and things like that, because we don't want to feel like we're endorsing certain behaviors or um, like we're going to influence them or make them feel like it's more okay for them to do things. Um, And so I guess it sometimes it feels like a difficult balance to tread, you know, between how do I disclose enough things to make my teenager feel comfortable also disclosing to me, but not feel like I'm, you know, endorsing certain behaviors. Yes. And again, that's a 15% rule. We're back to that again. 
But there's also something interesting, Andy, in what you said, that the parent is withholding because I've got a concern. So Mm -hmm. there's two things to share. One is, Uh, uh, well, this is what I did. And I'm concerned about sharing this. Yeah, I feel kind of conflicted about whether I should even tell you this. That's right. That's as, and that's being more open wow, and is yeah. encouraging the teenager to also be more open. Yeah. And you're sharing your feelings and worries. It's really strong. And then also it does kind of counteract that effect a little bit of it doesn't feel like you're so just, you know, oh, hey, when I was your age, we used to smoke pot every day or whatever. You know? yeah. um, you, you're being open about your reservations of sharing that sort of tempers that effect a little bit. Continuing in this vein a little bit, you have kind of a diagram in here of um, Mm -hmm. high versus low influence people and the costs of those discrepancies. Um, And I guess the larger the discrepancy gets, the more some of these kind of this cycle, this dysfunctional cycle kind of starts to play out um, where the low influence person becomes passive, emotionally withdraws, resists being influenced and withholds information about what's important to them. And then the high influence person um, believes they're always right, devalues what the other has to say and tends to dominate the situation. And um, I think a lot of parents and teenagers can find themselves caught in this cycle. I wonder what you, you can do to sort of um, put the brakes on that or start to um, bring each other back back together or, or meet in the middle somehow. Yeah, the, there's, um, there, there always will be a power discrepancy. Sure. What that is referring to is when there's a wide, wide gap. And when there's a wide gap, we don't uh, listen to the other person. We don't think they have any value and so on. Right. And, and I think one of the ways for a parent to um, handle that is are you really interested in your teenager? Are you curious? Do you want to find out what's going on with them? Now, it may be that uh, often teenagers want to have their privacy and you've got to be careful that you're not infringing on their privacy. But again, you want to share your intention and your wish. Gee, I, I, you know, I want to understand your world um, and so on. And uh, hope you understand mine. Gee, it sounds like you're having some uh, issues with some of your friends. Uh, uh, Will you share what's going on? And the trouble is a parent often jumps in with advice rather than with understanding of saying, uh, well, that must be hard. What have you thought about doing? And also to say, have confidence, I'm sure you can handle it. Because hmm. I think that uh, teenagers are pretty resilient. We, in a sense, want them to take risks. We don't want them to play totally safe. But we uh, also are worried about that. And can we share all of, all of what we want? You know, I want you to uh, live your life. I want you to have a full life. And you know that I'm concerned about you. You talk a lot in this book about something called a pinch or pinches. Uh, What's a pinch and um, why is it so important? 
Well, even if we love each other, uh, we do things that inadvertently annoy. Sure. I do that with my wife. I'm sure I know I do it with my kids. Yeah. They're, they're sort of small things. So yeah. we have the example in the book that uh, I was making coffee and Eva, my wife, was down in the kitchen and I left the dirty spoon on the counter. Uh, well, well, that's not a capital crime. Right. You know, kids may not put away their dishes all the time. They leave them on the coffee table in the living room. Yes. <laughs> And dirty um, laundry, they just leave it in the hallway after practice and it smells. That's right. Hold them so many times and they just keep doing it. And uh, that becomes a pinch. And if we don't deal with it, it becomes what we call a crunch. So we're often in a dilemma of do I raise it? Do I not? I don't want to be seen as nagging. I see. Um, But that becomes something to talk about. You see, Again, we're talking about the dirty laundry. We tend to give directives. Don't do that. Yeah. Could we define that as a problem for us jointly to share? Hey, instead of saying, hey, there's a new rule. You have to clean up your laundry. Otherwise, you don't have TV privileges. And and there are many solutions. That's one solution. Yeah. We also had an issue with laundry with our teenage daughter. Okay. Yeah. And we made the agreement that. She could keep her dirty laundry in her room, but she had to keep the door closed. Well, <laughs> that helped us because we didn't have to look at it. Yeah. And it helped her because she had control over what she did. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, so can we get into now problems? it's her problem. <laughs> what, would, what would work out that would work for you, Kendra, work for us? So how, than, how, would you, how would you bring that up with her or... You know, well, I think you I would start that conversation. I would first start with my feelings. Okay. I would yeah. say, gee, Kendra, I'm bothered that when you come home, there is this line of dirty clothes from the uh, front door up to your uh, room. Um, I find that bothering. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, what can we do about it? And Rather than telling, can we sit down and talk about it? And uh, as I vaguely remember the past, we talked about it for a while. And Kendra said, well, I don't want to keep everything so neat all the time. And anyway, it's my room. So I think we said, okay, what if you put all your dirty clothes on the uh, floor if you want to, but we keep the door closed? And it turns out there was an interesting benefit from that, that our house got broken into. And uh, when the police came and saw her room, they said, oh my goodness, the burglars really uh, made a mess here. And Kendra said, oh no, that's the way it always is. But the fun thing was all of her electronics were under her dirty clothes. So... It was sort of a humorous outcome uh, from her point of view, but that was a resolution. We Uh, could live, we could live with her room being a mess if the door was closed. And then, so um, what, what happens if she doesn't do that? You know, you have the conversation. She's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put them in my room. I'll close the door. And then you come home the next day and there they are in the hallway again, just like she said she wasn't going to do. Now you're pissed. 
Well, hopefully you're not far that extreme, but okay, you would, okay. I would go back in to say, we had an agreement. Yeah. What happened to it? Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be treated like an adult. I want to treat you like an adult. Yeah. Adults hold to agreement. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. See, we often determine, dictate the solution. Can we sit down and say, what works for both of us? Yeah, right. What do you suggest? You have a very helpful model in here that I really like. Um, You call it the three realities um, mm-hmm. you've got, yeah. So, um, there's, there's the first reality is the intent of the person who's doing the thing. And then the second reality is the behavior, the actual thing that they do. And then the third reality is the impact that it has on you. Um, why are these important and what, uh, what do we need to know about these three different realities? Well, what you're talking about is in any interpersonal situation, I only know two things. If I'm the actor, I know my intention. We can see the behavior. Right. But I don't know the effect. Uh, yeah. The other person sees the behavior and knows the effect on them, but doesn't know your intention. Now, right. where we get into trouble, and we have the image of these three realities, of a right. tennis net between the first and the second reality. Okay. And we say, as you can't play in the other person's backcourt, you got to stay on your side of the net. But most feedback is, as we say, over the net. So if I say, well, you just want to dominate. I don't know that. You're assuming that's my attribution of your motives. Right. Yeah. And then it gets us into an argument. No, I don't. You're just irresponsible. Well, then it goes south even more. So what we say is if you stick with what you know, it's indisputable. So if I'm doing something that's bothering you, if you were to say, David, I'm really bothered when you interrupt me, that's indisputable. I can't say, no, you aren't. Yeah. Because I'm over your net. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's different than saying you just want to dominate when you interrupt. You don't know that. And that's what causes problems. We need to be in touch with our feelings and separate those from thoughts and stick with what we know. And we say you could raise almost anything with almost anybody. Right. If you stick with what you know and you get into trouble when you go over the net and we Uh, do it all the time. Don't we? Yep. We're here today with David Bradford, author of Connect, and we're talking about proven strategies to deepen your relationship with your teenager and take the communication in your family to the next level. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Anger is a secondary emotion. Yeah. It's not a primary emotion. And usually it's a safer way to express a deeper feeling that we don't feel comfortable sharing. The more we can get out of controlling and more into joint problem solving, the more likely we are to find something that works for both of us. 
Emotions tell us something important is going on. Yeah. And to say to somebody, don't be emotional, it's less useful to say, what's going on that this is so bothering? We also need to be aware of times we as a parent get booked. Yeah. I'll never forget the time we were having dinner and my daughter, I think she was uh, 15, yeah. very provocatively said, you realize, of course, you can't keep me from doing anything I want to do. And I was about to rise out of my chair. And fortunately, I caught myself. Yeah. And my wife said, Kendra, you're right. We just trust your good judgment. And I went, Phew. saved by my wife. And by and large, she had good judgment, not always. Yeah. But she survived and grew to be a very mature adult and a great mother herself. But again, we need to be careful that we don't overreact. Well, I had other options. I could have said, wow, that feels to me very provocative. And I'm trying not to get hooked into an argument with you because that is, doesn't help either of us. Yeah, but yeah. what's going on with you? What's going on that you would, you would want to say that? Yeah. And she might have said, well, I just want to be clear that I have autonomy. Well, then we can have a good discussion. Well, I want you to have autonomy. Yeah. But I also have feelings and I also have concerns. How can we deal with that? Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.